So would you please put your hands together for Helen Scales?
the average across that whole phase from the 70s to around 2000. In last year, we had half of that amount, half of the average amount between, for all those decades, since essentially satellites have been in space and we've been measuring the extent of sea ice over the Arctic, we've got to half that amount. And the consequences and the impacts of that loss are going to be really quite, quite amazing, quite unexpected. A lot of the aspects of, of, of the changes going uh, taking place in the North Pole, we're going to just be really comprehensive um, on climate, on ecosystems and so on. So that's, that's really scary. Other things that are happening with climate change in the oceans, the hidden side of it, are things like ocean acidification. As mountain carbon dioxide builds up in the atmosphere, more and more of it's dissolving in the oceans and the pH is dropping. Since the Industrial Revolution, um, the oceans have actually become 30% more acidic than they were, say, 200 years ago. And that's causing all sorts of, um, already starting to cause impacts and lots of projected ideas of things that live in the oceans that rely on calcium carbonate skeletons of some sort. Coral reefs are one example. It's thought that possibly by, uh, by 2050, the oceans could be so acidic that actually only 15% of the coral reefs growing now will still be able to keep growing because that acidity is going to erode away their skeleton. It's going to make it basically impossible for most coral reefs to be able to grow. Um, this thing is a sea butterfly. Um, they're quite um, beautiful creatures, I think. And they're basically like the snails that you get in your garden. You can see its curling shell here. Um, but they're quite small, and they've sprouted wings, and they fly through the open ocean. They flap their tiny wings. They live in the pelagic open ocean environment. And these two have a calcium carbonate shell, just like normal snails. Um, and predictions are that life's going to get really tough for things like sea butterflies um, as the oceans become increasingly acidic. And, you know, it really could just be a matter of decades before large parts of the ocean are too acidic for animals like this to be able to grow and maintain their populations. And the problem with that is, um, apart from them being beautiful and so on, is that they are um, the staple diet for many other marine species. They're called the potato chips, or the crisps of the ocean. Um, so whales, birds, all sorts of things will eat, eat sea butterflies. They're really important food. So without them, there's going to be a lot of humble down um, in the oceans. So, you know, that's all quite depressing, um, and there's plenty of other things that I could tell you to convince you that there are problems in the oceans at the moment. Um, but what I really want to talk to you today is about how we can really do, what we can do about those problems in the ocean, and where we can start from, what's the basis of kind of getting to grips with, with, with ocean conservation, ocean <coughs> issues. I guess uh, the problem that I see is that for most people, most of the time, the oceans are out of sight and out of mind. You don't think about what goes on beneath these blue waves. And, uh, but, and, and another part of that is that when you think about fish and things that live in the sea, that's the sort of maybe thing that might come to mind. Ugly, yucky, slimy, scaly creatures. Not really something that's easy to empathise with. So even if you do think about fish and sea creatures, you might not really feel like you want to get involved and care about them. Um, I should just point out that this poor thing is a deep sea fish. And it has been hoiked out of its environment, so no wonder it looks a bit horrible and sad. Um, but, um, but the point I want to make today is that I think um, we can, as the general public, as, every, as people who, who aren't like spending all of their time diving and being in the oceans, even if you feel that you have you know, no direct connection to the oceans, we can fundamentally change the way we think about things that live in the sea. Because we've done it before. And I'm sure that we can do it again. 
Um, so today I'm, I'm going to start off by telling a story about whales. Um, because actually when it comes to caring about things that live in the oceans, um, whales are kind of like the success story. Because everyone loves whales, right? What's not to like about these big, beautiful, majestic creatures that wander the oceans, harmless, wonderful things? Everyone loves whales. Well, um, the truth is that this hasn't always been the case. And in fact, whales have gone through a sort of series of image crises in which people have definitely not looked at them as being quite such beautiful things. If we go back a couple of hundred years, um, whales were just really one of the scary, crazy beasts that inhabit the alien realm that is the oceans. And, you know, if you were unfortunate to become some sort of shipwreck victim, it could be well, could well be a whale that gobbles you up and, uh, and it's something to just generally be fearful of. So for a long time, yes, whales, we didn't really know about them, they just popped their heads up occasionally or they would, uh, you would occasionally beach uh, themselves and you'd get this body of a weird sea monster ending up on a beach and again that would create awe and wonder but it wasn't something that you would sort of really connect with. Then the next phase uh, of public opinion towards whales kicked in um, I guess a around 100 or so years ago. Um, and that's when people began looking at whales, not as something to be scared of, but as something to use. And uh, they basically started looking at these enormous animals and thinking, wow, they're really big. We could make a lot of candles out of those. Um, and that's essentially what people began seeing whales as, enormous floating candle factories. But for a long, long time, whale oil, blubber essentially, illuminated the human world. It was our main source um, of oil for lamps and candles and so on. And, uh, and we began, people began catching whales on an enormous scale. Um, for example, um, sperm whales. I don't know if anyone knows why sperm whales got their name. Um, but it is because uh, back in the days of, anyone know? Back in the days of hunting and whaling, um, when that really began, um, whalers discovered that they, sperm whales have an enormous cavity inside their big, huge, great big heads, um, filled with a fluid that they thought was sperm, so they called them sperm whales. Um, and they made very high quality candles, the finest candles with no smoke were made from what at the time was thought to be whale sperm. It isn't whale sperm, uh, it isn't sperm, but we now think it's something to do with their echolocation system, because um, they go hunting in the deep ocean or giant squid and things like that. So, um, so that's, you know, it was, oh, and to, to extract this, this sperm, what they thought was sperm, and they would cut a hole in the top of the whale's head. Someone would actually climb in and scoop out and pass out buckets of this fluid, and then they would keep that in barrels, take it back to land, and they would, they would use this as this really high-quality oil. So whaling was a big thing. Um, slowly, um, ker um, kerosene came along, and so that actually replaced whale oil as the main source of lighting. Um, there's still loads of other things that whales were used for. We kept on catching them. You probably know that um, whale bone in, in corsetry, that as he does come from the mouths of whales, the bristles in baleen whales' mouths were the, the, were the sort of bits that kept people, gave women that beautiful hour shape, hourglass shape. That was from a whale's mouth. Um, their fat was used in margarines, in glues, um, and, and it actually up until quite recently, up until at least sort of the 70s, Parts of whales were finding their way into our everyday lives. There were um, uh, oils for cars that were made out of whale oil. Um, Anti-rust paints were using parts of whales. And I remember even when I was a kid um, that 
you kind of people would talk about the glue on the back of a stamp actually being part or envelopes having whale um, oil in them, and that sort of seemed normal. And I guess, and, and the point is that uh, while we were the sort of at the height of the whaling industry, um, it was perfectly acceptable to catch and use whales. They were seen really as being uh, a resource to be used, and there was no great outrage about this. People just got on with it, and that was it was fine. But slowly. Well, whales began to run out. We, did, we were catching too many of them. They did be, their populations did begin to decline. And public opinion did begin to shift. And I don't know if any of you remember the Save the Whale campaign in the 80s that Greenpeace and various other organisations ran. And I have to say, this was probably the single most successful ocean conservation campaign that's ever been. Because within the matter of a few years, whales went from being this resource, this industrial resource that we could use, no one really kind of questioned, to be strictly protected. In 1986, there was a moratorium on whaling, and that's still in place today, which basically means that the 13 species of great whales, um, there's no legal capture of them anymore, apart from uh, scientific whaling, which I really won't go into, um, and uh, a bit of traditional hunting. Apart from that, there's no legal capture of whales anymore. They're strictly protected, which for us, ocean species everywhere in the world is really quite incredible. And we can think about you know, why why that might have been, and what lies behind the success of that campaign. And clearly, you know, there was a real, there was the imagery of the Save the Whale campaign. It was a gory business, catching whales, you know, these are big animals that was, it was nasty business. So Greenpeace did very well in capturing those images and showing people what was going on. And I think that did help people get behind the campaign. Um, but there was a discovery in 1967 that I think, uh, and people agree with me, um, made the world fall in love with whales. Um, Roger Payne and Scott McVeigh were the first people to record the sounds of, so of humpback whales singing. They used US Navy hydrophones, Navy hydrophones um, and uh, caught these beautiful, intricate, wonderful songs on, on tape for the first time. And they began thinking about, well, what do these songs mean? Are they communicating to each other? What's going on beneath the waves? And uh, at first they were really worried that the, this discovery was going to actually be used by whalers to find more whales, um, because you could listen out through the songs and find out where they are. But actually it did the opposite. And that discovery got people really behind the campaign to save, to stop hunting whales. Um, it was, they, they made records of it and sold them. You know, I do really think that people sitting at home listening to whale song did make a difference uh, to this, this campaign to save the whales. Um, so my kind of question today is how, if we could turn whales from a, 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 an industrial resource back into wildlife, which we kind of, they transform themselves into something that really we can protect fully and care for as wildlife again. If we can do that because we learned that they could sing, can we love other animals that live in the sea just as much because they also have unhidden, undiscovered talents um, that we're just starting to learn about? So what I'm gonna do today is, um, is introduce you to some of the raw talents that I, I know about of creatures that live in the ocean and hopefully convince you to pay a bit more attention to other things that live in the sea, just like um, the whales, or perhaps we can kind of push for their protection as well and a greater protection of the ocean. So that's what we're going to do. Um, I wasn't going to include any um, animals that have been taught to do things by humans. But then this story came into the news a few weeks ago and I couldn't resist it. Did anyone see the sea otter that's been taught how to play basketball? <laughs> um, it is 
actually, it's in the Oregon Zoo, and uh, um, apparently it was, uh, I think it was, a, it was physiotherapy, because it has, uh, it has uh, arthritis, I think, so it was taught how to, and it was rewarded for putting balls in the It's very cute. Check out the YouTube clip if you want to have a look. But there we go. Sea otters playing basketball. That's good, right? Um, and there was also a story late last year about a beluga whale um, that had taught itself to mimic the speech of humans, um, again in an aquarium, and it started, they found this out because a diver was in the, in the tank with it, and, it, and the diver thought he'd heard someone say, get out of the water, um, so he did, uh, and then there was no one around, and it realized it was, he realized it was the whale saying, get out of the water. We don't think it understood what it was saying, and actually the main thing it learned to mimic was a kind of the sound of distant conversation, like people talking over there, and it, it mimics that, and the belugas are known to sort of have songs and they, they do um, have this ability to make sound. So it kind of makes sense that if they live in captivity, they might start mimicking what goes on around them. So there we go, two silly ones. But what I really want to do is show you some of the fantastic creatures that live in the oceans and come up with their own ways of being fabulously talented. And I unapologetically begin with seahorses. Um, yes, I wrote a book about seahorses. And some of you probably already know um, one of, like, the really coolest fact about seahorses, uh, which is that they are the only animals we know of in the world in which it's the males that get pregnant and give birth. Now that's not the talent that I was going to actually point out, but I would like to just play you this little short video of what happens at the end of that process of male pregnancy, it's quite This male surprised us by unexpectedly giving birth. Although the babies were dark brown and no bigger than a thread of formed little seahorses. The male watched as they drifted one by one up over the fan and into the water column. Then, as if satisfied they were safely away, he got back to the business of birthing. He repeated this sequence until 13 miniature seahorses had been born. Because what she wants to be able to do is as soon as she turns up and finds he's given birth, 
she has some more eggs ready to put into his pouch, and then the whole process can continue, and they can have as many babies as possible, which is what it's about, really. So dancing seahorses. I give you dancing seahorses. If we have singing whales, I think we should love seahorses just as much because they can dance. And it's the kind of behaviour you don't expect, perhaps, from little creatures that live in the sea. Other ones do similar things. This is, <coughs> these are cleaner shrimp. If you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, you might remember there's a French uh, character, I think, who cleans the aquarium tank. I'm very fastidious about that. Not quite accurate, but never mind. Um, uh, in the sense that cleaner shrimp in the wild clean other fish. They don't clean the environment. Um, but what they're doing is they're picking bits of um, parasites and dead uh, bits of food and uh, old scales and so on from the, uh, the bodies and even the mouths of other fish. Um, here's one uh, climbing into the mouth of a, a moray eel. Um, and there's a fabulous relationship where the, big, the predatory fish agree to not eat the shrimp when they climb in. And it's this incredible trust that happens between them. But the reason I mention it is just like seahorses. Um, cleaner shrimp dance as well and they do it to advertise their cleaning services they do this little um, kind of side to side shape and they'll start they have a territory where they will go to and then the fish will visit that part of the, of the coral reef um, to be cleaned and they will do this little dance and um, studies have shown that they actually dance more vigorously if they're more hungry um, so it's a, actually a really accurate advertisement for their services because if they're hungry they're going to do a really good job of cleaning you so they do these little dances, um, and I just think that's, that's rather wonderful. Um, and it's shown you know, that basically they kind of wave their arms around and, uh, and show, kind of try and be conspicuous to potential clients that come along and get fed. And the fish really do benefit from having this cleaning service. The studies again have shown if you, if you remove the cleaner shrimp, and there's some fish that also clean from a piece of reef, then the fish really do um, suffer from parasite loads and so on. So they're important to keep the reef clean. Um, and they do it by dancing, which I think is fantastic. Well, I'm going to go now from some tiny creatures that don't move very far to um, some other sea inhabitants that undergo immense feats of endurance and swim incredible journeys, which I think is just something else that we should celebrate about um, marine species. Um, this is the bluefin tuna, specifically the Pacific bluefin tuna. Now, if you want to see one of these animals, the best place to go, unfortunately, um, is Tokyo, uh, to the Tsukiji market in Tokyo, where more and more of these animals are ending up. Um, just a few months ago, I think in January, uh, there was a record-breaking sale of one bluefin tuna for $1.7 million. Um, if you don't know already, that they basically fished for the sushi trade. Um, and only in the last few decades they've become really highly prized as a species uh, in the sushi trade. And they are really kind of heavily hunted for that. Um, but what scientists are finding out um, increasingly is the amazing lives that these animals and similar Pacific predators um, lead. They're using um, cutting-edge satellite tracking technology to figure out where they go and how they use the oceans. And they're uncovering these incredible journeys. This is actually, there are lots of different species that have been tagged by a project um, based um, out of Western uh, North America, and they, these are sort of seals and uh, whales and birds and sharks that are using the Pacific in, in incredible, predictable, clever ways. And the tuna are just the kings of those of those journeys. Um, the adult bluefin Pacific uh, Pacific bluefins migrate from the north to the south of the uh, of the Pacific every year. They possibly have the largest home range of any animal we know of. Um, one individual juvenile was tagged off. Japan 
it swam all the way across to California and back again in seven months. That was a 45,000 mile journey and it wasn't even fully grown up yet. That's, I just think that's absolutely fantastic. And the reason they're doing these, undergoing these incredible journeys is to find places to mate, find places to feed. And they're doing this in a very selective and intelligent way. They're not just roaming around. It's very predictable. Um, a new project's just starting up to really get to grips with this. And there's an idea of this sort of migration highway, super highway in the Pacific, like the Serengeti in, the, in Africa. And there are so many species that are using the oceans. There are hot spots where mating takes place, all sorts of stuff. And we're just learning. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg with this, this kind of research. It's fantastic. So I give you bluefin tuna as another of our fabulous species to think about in the oceans. Um, my next species is one of my favourites um, after seahorses, um, the mimic octopus. And I don't know if anyone's heard of the mimic octopus. But this is um, it's a species that was discovered in 1998 in Indonesia. It lives in sandy areas around coral reefs. And this basically does the most incredible job of trying to avoid being someone else's food. We talked about blue fins travelling huge distances to find food. These guys try and avoid becoming food by doing impersonations of other animals. And these aren't just mimics of one species. They mimic a whole range of different marine species. And it, they can choose which one they want to be from minute to minute. They do brilliant things, like um, they'll stuff all six of their tentacles down, uh, down a hole, and they'll leave two of them out, um, make them stripy black and white, and wave them around to look like a sea snake, um, which is just genius. It's sort of, it, the behaviour of it and the subtlety of the impersonation is quite astounding. I don't have any pictures, um, because the videos didn't work, but go and look it up on YouTube, and you'll see some great pictures of this. Um, they also wrap their arms around themselves and make themselves flat, and swim along the bottom of the sea and look like a flatfish, which is also poisonous. Sea snakes, I should point out, are very, very toxic. So what they're doing is they're impersonating venomous species. They aren't venomous. They're basically harmless and soft. They are a type of mollusk related to those sea butterflies I mentioned before, but they don't have a hard shell to protect themselves. So they have to come up with other ways of avoiding becoming someone's dinner and being clever and mimicking other creatures that are poisonous is one way of doing that. And I just think they are like the genius champions of, of that kind of mimicry. And in fact, just recently, in a kind of the next part of the story has been unveiled, which is that not only are the mimic octopuses doing an incredible job of, of hiding and uh, um, impersonating other animals, but there's a fish that mimics the mimic. There is a, there's a thing called a brown uh, black marble jawfish that it's not quite as clever. It's not doing anything behaviorally to look like a mimic octopus, but it's got the right coloration and it swims around and basically hides among the tentacles of the mimic octopus. So just incredible things going on um, down beneath the waves. Right, finally, my final species um, of, of sea creature that I think I would like to celebrate for being particularly talented um, are some sharks. Now, sharks definitely, I would say, suffer from probably the worst image crisis um, of all sea creatures. Still, I mean, Jaws the movie was years ago, but still we've got this irrational fear of, of sharks. Um, I was saying the other night that, in fact, there are plenty of other things in the world that are more dangerous than sharks, including vending machines, toilets, and air fresheners. Trust me on that. Um, but uh, these, this is a fully grown shark. Um, it's, it's a type of lantern shark. It's called the small-eyed pygmy lantern shark. That's a fully grown shark. They live in the deep sea, hundreds of metres beneath the waves, and they glow in the dark. 10% of all sharks we know of have the ability to make their own light and glow in the dark. Um, one reason they do it, which you can see happening in this picture, 
is, to, to, is essentially to disappear, to camouflage themselves in the open ocean. Because they live in this part of the sea called the twilight zone. And if we're talking hundreds of meters down, where there's really not much ambient light, but if you look back up towards the surface of the ocean, you can still see bright blue light downwelling from above. And if you're swimming along and something's beneath you, you will create quite a conspicuous silhouette against that bright light. So what sharks, and actually lots of other animals have done, is evolved this glowing belly, and that exactly matches the downwelling light above them, and they essentially vanish. It, it, it disguises their silhouette, and they vanish into, that, uh, into the twilight zone. And it's just genius. And, the, and in fact, they can even adjust the, the intensity and the color of that light, depending on where they are in the water column. It's just fantastic. Um, in fact, um, so that, we, that was a study a couple of years ago came out, but then just recently, just a few weeks ago, there's a, another discovery on a similar species that they're also using light, as well as for camouflage, they're using it to warn off predators. And they actually have these little spines, you can just make them out here on their backs next to the um, fins. And they're essentially little lightsabers. They are these tiny, transparent, um, well, not tiny, fairly spiky and nasty, actually, um, spines uh, on the back of their fins. Um, and they have these glowing bits of glowing skin either side, and because the this, spine this is transparent, it glows and lights up like a lightsaber. And the theory is that that's, um, as well as disappearing from beneath, if anything's trying to attack them from above, it's saying, nope, don't catch me, I'm really spiky and I'm going to give you a real mouthful, so don't even bother trying to eat me. Um, so that's another thing that sharks use light for. And there's one more, which uh, is even more astounding, um, and that is that the male sharks have glowing genitals. Um, it's dark down there, I think you can figure it all out for yourself, whether that's important, but um, there we go, glowing sharks, I just think, fantastic. You just wouldn't think of that, would you, uh, when you're thinking about sharks, and the fact they can be so small and so brilliant. So, there you go, those are my selection of some of my favourite uh, sea creatures that do surprising and, I think, rather fabulous things down beneath the waves, um, and I hope that can help you think slightly differently about things um, that live in the ocean. Now, I haven't finished. I gave a version of this lecture um, last year, a shorter version, and that's where I stopped. And lots of people came up to me afterwards and said, great, that's fantastic, but what can we do? You talked about the Save the Whale campaign, and that was a great success, and hopefully will continue to be, but what can we do about the rest of the oceans? So um, what I want to do now is just go through a couple of different ideas about where marine conservation is at, and what we as individuals can actually do to help make a difference for the problems that are going on in the oceans. And there are two main groups of these, these approaches that we can take. Um, the first is marine protected areas. So the idea behind this is having parts of the ocean where we basically give the ocean a chance. We stop, we, we cut back on some of those high, highly impacting activities, mostly things like fishing, and we cordon them off just like a, natu a nature reserve on land. Um, at the moment, <coughs> globally, we've got nearly 6,000 um, 5,800 marine protected areas. They cover 4.2 million square kilometres, which is only 1.2% of the ocean surface. We've got a long way to go. Um, targets in terms of what scientists and conservationists would like to see range up to 30% of the oceans. Um, so we're obviously a very long way off that. Um, but what we do know is that these, these types of areas do work. I should say that marine protected areas are a very general term for some sort of spatial protection in the ocean. Um, marine reserve is for very strict, um, high levels of protection where no damaging activities at all are allowed, no fishing.
no extraction, maybe even no one even goes there, even to go to scuba diving. So marine reserves are very strict part of that spectrum, but you can have protected areas which are a bit more multi-purpose and so on. But we do know they work in terms of within a protected area, habitats recover, species recover, and actually you get a spillover effect, and you do get benefits beyond boundaries. Big fish will grow bigger, they will migrate out, they have more babies, um, they will also drift out of the protected area, and you generally can see fish catches will go up around protected areas. It can just give the ch these parts of the ocean a chance to recover and do a bit better. Now, there are some major, major challenges when it comes to marine protection um, in the oceans. Things like the high seas. There's no, there's no legislation, frame, legislational framework for beyond the edge of national boundaries. What do we do in the high seas? It's a big, big challenge. Um, the other problem is actually enforcing these things. Often they're quite remote, it's hard to get to them. How do you actually stop people from fishing inside protected areas? And these are things that conservationists are trying to figure out at the moment. I want to go through a couple of examples of protected areas that, that Britain are involved in right now. Um, that are at two very different scales. One big question as well is, should we have very big, very remote protected areas where habitats and the oceans are doing better still because it's away from people? Or should they be closer and sm smaller protected areas closer to where people are so that we can actually benefit directly from those protected areas? Now, Pitcairn is an example of the first one. Potentially, it's going to be a new protected area and a very large and a very remote one. So Pitcairn is in the middle, at the bottom of the South Pacific. It's famous for where the mutineers on the bounty ended up. Um, and there's still a tiny population of people living there um, who are partly descended from the, the bounty mutineers. It's a British overseas territory, and that's why it's interesting, because it's actually up to the British government to decide what to do. And they have it within their power, if they wanted to, to create a marine reserve in the entire exclusive economic zone, which is 200 nautical miles offshore, from Pitcairn, and that adds up to about 300,000 square kilometres. So that would be a really, really big, really important protected area. And the habitats, there's um, that uh, picture I showed you before, National Geographic and Pew, um, the Pew Environment Group have been doing a project on this. They've been to look, and the habitats are doing really pretty well. Um, the coral reefs around Pitcairn are quite beautiful. Um, but there is fishing there, which is quite astonishing. Even in that remote part of the ocean, fishing vessels are getting there. So this kind of protection could happen. Um, they're working uh, with the people who live on Pitcairn, they're behind this, they want this to happen. The next step is for the government here to actually push that through and see that's happening. So that's going to happen in the, in the pipeline at the moment. Um, the other aspect of marine protected areas that uh, is happening in the UK right now is around our shores. Marine conservation zones, MCZs, are a new generation of marine protected areas that we're looking at getting around the British coasts. Uh, they've sprung out of something called the Marine and Coastal Access Act um, from 2009, which basically means there's now legislation, which means we have to, the government has to implement um, a network of protected areas for the oceans um, around the British Isles, around England specifically. Um, and they're to protect things like these um, corals, pink sea fans we get in British waters, seahorses, um, skates and rays, some brilliant little invertebrates that live in British waters, anemones and jellyfish. Um, and what happens essentially was there's been this big project that's cost about £8 million pounds to decide where these protected areas are going to go. And they've involved members of the public from the start. This has been a really grassroots approach. What they did, the government um, basically got together groups of sea users, people who use the oceans, whether it's for work or for plays, and fishermen and divers and kayakers and people who like to go walking along the coasts, all those sorts of things, got together and figured out where these protected areas should go. 
um, what they should look like, how big they should be. They had lots of scientific advice, and the science advisors were in there too. And what they did was put forward 127 proposed sites that they want to see turned into protected areas, and that's a matter of progress. Um, the latest news is that the government has put forward 31 of those sites, only 31 of 127 sites, to become the first round of these new um, protected area sites. Um, and conservationists are up in arms that this really isn't good enough. And um, having put so much money into the process of deciding where they go, um, it looked like we were being really progressive in terms of how this whole thing was going to be decided, and possibly now it's going to really fall down at the last moment. Um, there's a public consultation on for another two weeks um, all about this process, so everyone can have their say about what's being proposed. Um, and I would really urge you, if you've got any, if you have any feelings about this, to get in touch and to get involved with trying to encourage the government to do as much as they can with this with this legislation that we have in place now. So um, go to Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's Fish Fight website. They will tell you all about what to do to, to have to put your say to the government. The Marine Conservation Society are also really involved. You can go on there, follow them on Twitter. Um, and the Wildlife Trust are also really big into trying to get the best for the oceans. And one of the things, one of the problems with what's changed um, uh, in this whole process of the MCZ, the Marine Conservation Zones, is that originally the government and the, the scientists decided, they said that we were going to do this with the best available evidence. It's one of the problems with protecting the oceans and trying to figure out what's there, is we just don't have the information about what lives where, what species are, in what condition. But they said, okay, we will gather what we have and we will decide on the basis of that information what we're going to protect. Somehow, somewhere along the way, they did a U-turn unexpectedly and said, no, no, we've changed our minds. We actually need to know exactly where everything is and we don't have that information. And that's why they're saying we can only put 31 sites forward, not 127. Having originally said, you know, go for it, be more precautionary. Um, we need to protect the oceans before we know. They've turned that around um, and they want some more information before they go ahead with the conservation um, zones. So have a look. If you're interested, I would, I would really urge you to have a look at those, uh, those websites. Um, my last point I want to make is what happens beyond protected areas. Um, even if we got to the point of maybe 10% of the oceans are protected, I mean, goodness, maybe even 30% if we're really lucky, but that still leaves an awful lot of the oceans that are really beyond protection. So if we're going to think about healthy seas and restoring you know, the beauty and the wonder and, and the protection that it needs, we need to think beyond protected areas. Um, and it leads me to basically a point which is, you know, I mentioned how for most people the oceans are out of sight and out of mind, but if any of us eat seafood, there's a direct connection from our daily lives back to the oceans. And in that sense, you also have a really powerful role to play in the changes that can take place, um, essentially through the choices we make in the seafood that we eat. Um, and uh, the problem with this is it, it's knowing which fish are okay to eat and which aren't. And it's having that information to be able to make informed choices. And this is something that I do think is a real problem. Now, there are some independent eco-labels for seafood. This one is the Marine Stewardship Council, the MSC. Um, and you might see fish products in the supermarkets that are labeled with, the, uh, with this little blue sticker. And that gives you some indication that it, is, um, it has come from 
uh, a fishery that is a bit more fish friendly. Um, there have been criticisms of the MSC, um, partly because it's grown very quickly. It began in 1996. It was a collaboration between WWF and Unilever. Um, and um, some scientists said, well, it grew too fast. They were certifying too many fisheries. How can we be sure that they definitely mean, uh, they definitely are fish that are coming from sustainable sources? Um, but a project looked into this, some scientists did the analysis, and this is their results. They, they figured out that an MSC-certified fish was three to five times less likely to be subject to harmful fishing than uncertified fish. So it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. It is definitely a good starting place. So if you see that logo, I would say it's generally a good choice to go with. But what if you can't find, um, what if you want to you know, eat fish that hasn't been certified by MSC or, or possibly a couple of the other eco-label systems which are out there? Um, if you're feeling really proactive, I would really advise you to go to this website. This is run by the Marine Conservation Society, the Good Fish Guide. Um, and this gives really detailed information about uh, what fish are sustainable and which ones aren't. Um, and you put the name in, whether it's a common name or a scientific name, and um, it gives you um, advice about which ones are good and which ones aren't, based on a rating of one to five, um, one being brilliant and five being please try and avoid. And uh, there's also an app that you have on your phone. Um, and it, basically, it breaks it down. And it, the problem with this all is, though, it's very complicated. It's not just a case of which species you're eating, but it's a case of which species you're eating, where it was caught, how it was caught. Um, and this can all get a bit much. And even I find this quite difficult. I, I do eat seafood, but I really only try and eat sustainable seafood. And I even find this quite a challenge. And friends and family quite often come to me and say, look, what can I eat? Is this okay? And usually I say, no, it's not. Sorry. Um, but, um, but I basically have decided that to try and cut through the complicated side of trying to eat sustainable seafood and come up with some really simple steps that hopefully people can remember um, when they're making decisions about what they're going to eat. And um, so I want to just finish up, actually, by, if you don't mind, me giving you my five um, fish to eat and five fish to avoid. Um, I basically went through the, um, the fish online guide, and I looked at some of the species that are quite common in British diets, because we are particularly adventurous here in the UK in terms of the fish that we eat. Um, and I went through the ones that are very common and tried to come out with some some really broad picture of ones that are generally always okay to eat and ones that really it would be great if you could avoid. Um, two species that I looked at, and I'm not going to mention because they're just too complicated, are cod and tuna. They're so complicated, it's a really difficult picture to get a handle on which ones are okay to eat and which not, because it's not black and white, they're not all bad and they're not all good. So I'm afraid I'm going to put them to one side, and, and I urge you to go and have a look at put cod and tuna into the fish online and you'll see what I mean about how complicated it is. But my decisions on my five to avoid and five to eat are based around ones that are re um, readily available that you see often on menus in supermarkets and that, you know, on the whole, are hopefully are quite easy to remember. So I'm going to start with the five fish that, if, if you want me to kindly ask you, if you could possibly think about maybe avoiding eating, this is these. So the first one is place. Um, I, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail as to my decisions on this, and I can, but I am going to actually put all of these up on my website. So if you do want to come back to this and have another look at why I've chosen these species, they'll all be up there. Um, I can give you a link to that. Um, but place, it's a common species in fish and chip shops, but it's really not doing very well. A lot of bycatch is associated with place. 
Um, they also have quite, they live for a long time, and generally the longer lived a species is, the, uh, the more it's going to get impacted by fishing, and the less it's going to be able to recover and re uh, restore its population after a fishing uh, has taken place. So unfortunately, place is one to avoid. Um, it comes up mostly as five on the Good Fish Guide. If you really must have place, try and find it from the North Sea. That's only in threes. So that's not so bad. Um, I'm afraid white bait is off the White bait are basically baby fish. Eating fish before they've had a chance to reproduce is a really bad idea. Um, I mentioned this one to my dad the other day, and he was not having any of it. But I was like, please, next time, just try and think about something else instead of white bait. They're not, it's a whole bunch of different species, actually. It's mostly, um, they include things like herring and sprats and sand eels. But they are all at a very young age, and um, if they're harvested in large amounts, that really is a bad idea. So if you could avoid white bait, that would be brilliant. Um, monkfish, ugly thing. Why you'd want to eat it if you met one, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it is becoming increasingly popular, though. And unfortunately, the key problem with monkfish is that there are two species. One is doing fairly well, the other isn't. But in terms of management at the moment, they're lumped together. So we don't really know what's going on. Um, which one it is that you're eating and so on. So um, again, and they're quite difficult to, to manage. They're quite, they get caught as bycatch locks. They've got these big snaggly heads that get caught in nets. Um, if you can avoid monkfish, that would be fantastic. Um, and finally, you're gonna really hate me for this one. Oh no, not finally, sorry. Skate, okay, skate. Um, skate and rays, relatives of sharks. They live for a long time. They don't deal well with high levels of fishing. Um, if you can avoid uh, avoid skate, that would also be great. Another problem with skate is they are again all lumped together, like monkfish. They're not managed as individual species, they're often just put into a big category together, so it's really hard to know what's going on, and uh, they're not being effectively managed. So, if you avoid skate, this is the one that you're going to be upset with, um, I'm afraid. Tiger ponds and king ponds. Um, uh, they're generally farmed uh, in the tropics, these are tropical species, and there's lots of environmental problems associated with that. Um, I would urge you, if you haven't already, to watch Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's latest series of Fish Fight. He has a really good episode about fish farming, and as a scientist, I watched it, and I have to say, I think it was very good um, in pointing out the problems of what, the, essentially, the food that's fed to these um, shrimp. They're farmed on a scarily big industrial scale, um, and they're fed other fish that are essentially trawled up from the oceans. So do watch that if you want to find out more. The only thing he doesn't mention, which is fair enough, he has only got a certain amount of time on air to talk about these things, but a lot of the uh, shrimp are farmed in areas that used to be mangroves. And about 25% um, of the world's mangroves have been felled, mostly for sh um, farming shrimp. Um, and mangroves are a really important habitat. They protect coastlines, they're nurseries for fisheries, they're really, really important. And uh, unfortunately, shrimp farming is a real cause of that. But I do have some good news. You can find organic king prawns, that's fine. Um, they're listed as one by the, uh, I should say, the, the, the non-organic versions are five, listed as four or five by the good fish guide, so they're really not good. But these are much better. Um, generally, they'll, be, they'll have been reared in more environmentally conscious environments. They won't have been using um, petro uh, drugs to keep them alive, because the stocking densities are lower, so that's less of an impact. Um, they're not fed uh, trash fish uh, from the oceans. They're generally a better option, and you can find them. They are on sale in some supermarkets. If you can find organic prawns, go for it. Okay, those are all the bad ones. I'm going to quickly zip through the one, the fish that I would encourage you to eat as plentifully as you can. Mussels are brilliant. Mussels are reared without any chemicals. They're hand-reared. Uh, they basically you put ropes into areas of ocean where there are natural spawn from, uh, from wild mussels. They settle on the ropes. They're gathered by hand. They're fantastic. They're good for you. They're tasty. Moo marinier for dinner, definitely. If you're in the fish and chip shop, 
choose haddock instead of plates or cod. Um, they're generally better if you can avoid from Iceland. Um, that's good, but otherwise haddock are a good choice for a white fish, uh, generally. So go for haddock. Uh, there are two. On, they're listed as two on the uh, Big Fish Guide. Um, organic barned Atlantic salmon are also a bit like the prawns. They're a good choice. And any of the salmon from Alaska. They're, the Alaskan uh, authorities are doing a really good job of managing their fisheries. So that's Chinook, Coho, um, Sockeye. All those fish from Alaska are generally quite good. They're, they're kind of the pinkier salmons. So excellent, eat those. And finally, crabs. Crabs, especially if they're caught in Devon or in Shetland, um, are doing fairly well. And they're caught in a way that doesn't do much damage to anything else but pots. Um, so they are, if you like your dressed crab, then you can eat happily uh, as many crabs as you like. So that's just a summary uh, of the kind of avoid if you can and eat um, as much as you like. And I will put, um, I'll put that up on my website if anyone wants to look a bit more at why I made those choices. So that's it, really. Um, I guess my kind of call to you today is two things. Um, I want to thank you very much for all coming and for quietly sitting and listening to me talking about all these things. But if you can take two things away, um, one would be if you could just think a little about your seafood choices and pay some attention to what you're eating, how it was caught. Um, go and have a look at the, um, the Good Fish Guide. Have a rummage around. Look at just some of the things that you eat often. See what it looks like in terms of sustainability. And hopefully you'll find some alternatives that are better. Um, because I think, you know, don't forget the power that you have as consumers. I think the horse meat scandal has really shown us that we can make a difference. I mean, the, the turnaround in terms of what people are now buying um, in terms of processed meat is huge. So if we all make those decisions as seafood consumers, we can really make, uh, make a difference for the oceans too. So don't think it's just me or my own. You know, we do have the power to make change. And my second call is, listen out for these stories of the sea. You know, I spend a lot of my time trying to tell the, the hidden side of the oceans, unveiling the lives of creatures like these, so that uh, we can appreciate uh, the complexity of their lives and the wonderful things that go on. We've been telling stories about the ocean for thousands of years, and we carry on doing it today. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just listen out for those stories. And, and I tell you, I've got plenty, plenty more, because the stories of the sea will never run out. Um, there's always more to discover. We will never know everything there is to know about the oceans. And I find that really exciting. Thank you very much. So there's plastic waste that's ending up in the oceans from things like, it's not that we're directly dumping plastic into the oceans, but it gets there. It blows out of, uh, of landfill sites, plastic gets there, and it assists in the oceans, gets entrained in these big ocean currents. So in the Pacific, um, we think that there's sort of these circular currents keeping these, uh, these plastic... Uh, it's not like an island of plastic that you could go and walk across, but it is that it's almost like a super a soup of plastic particles. And the problem is that it gets broken down into smaller and smaller particles. Um, we don't, we're just starting to grasp the impact of this. 
Um, there are probably a lot of organisms that are eating the plastic. One of the most uh, obvious and the kind of most shocking are the seabirds. There are pictures, I think there's a movie about a midway atoll that's coming out and it's showing pictures of um, albatross with guts full of plastic. And I was actually just devastated at the story a few, just a few days ago about the whale died off Spain that ingested the plastic covering to a greenhouse um, from all the vegetables that we eat at this time of year. Because all the food comes, all the fresh fruit and vegetable eat comes from Spain mostly. They're grown in great big plastic polytunnels. One of these ended up in the sea and it killed a whale. I mean, God, like my seafood choices have to go as far as the vegetables I eat now. It's, inco it's incredible. So, no, I think plastic waste in the oceans is, is definitely one of the big problems up there. And how we're going to deal with that is a big challenge. Um, but I think we can all start doing our bit again. That's why not taking plastic bags and things like that, that's why that's so important. Um, can you comment on plans to mine the ocean floor over some recent uh, news coverage? Yeah, David Cameron's getting excited about the money we can make. Um, I think, again, uh, it's going to be really interesting because it, it links, again, it links our daily lives to the oceans because the reason we're doing it is to provide the minerals for, for the gadgets we use for computer technology and so on. And, and finding new sources of that is obviously going to be a real imperative um, as other sources run out. Um, we don't know enough about the impact that's having on the deep sea. Personally, I'm terrified that this is going to happen. Um, one of the places they're looking at are um, hydrothermal vents, because that's where um, these are very deep parts of the ocean, with cr um, cracks in the ocean crust, um, where hot, well, boiling hot, essentially mineral-laden waters gush up from the interior of the earth and deposit metals. And that's why we think these are going to be a, a, a potential place to mine. Um, mine these, uh, these minerals and metals that we need, and we just don't know the impact that's going to have. Uh, and again, it's one of the problems is how are we going to legislate for that, because often these are away from national boundaries. Um, I know people who are trying to get involved in studying these things, but the challenges are enormous. Um, I don't know how we're going to deal with that, how it's going to go forward, but I think it's definitely one to watch in the years to come. Uh, you mentioned that the seahorses go off to feed and then meet again. Yes. Has any research been done on how they navigate and find one another? <laughs> That's a very good question. They generally don't have very large territory. Mm. Um, we're talking only for the females, probably uh, sort of 10 square metres. Um, but I don't know, actually. So it's possibly by sight then? It could be not, by sight. Not magnetic um, or anything like that? Not that we know of. They do, there are now people starting to look at um, hearing in seahorses and how much they, um, they're sensitive to sounds. Uh, and it seems that we were alerted to this fact by um, people who, who keep the seahorses in captivity. And if, um, if the aquariums are very noisy with pumps and so on, they seem to not do as well. So they do seem to get stressed by sound. So it's possible they're quite sensitive to sound. But I don't know, it's a really good question. I'll have to go and do that. Thank you. Um, I'm vegetarian, so I'll never eat any fish. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the uh, if you want, there's um, a place in uh, Florida called the Moat Marine Aquarium, and they have a thing called a blue diet, which is beyond seafood. But it's like how can you eat in a way that's less impacting on the ocean? So that would be somewhere to go and look. But one thing I would mention straight off is organic food, because another problem I haven't mentioned um, is pollution in the oceans from runoff from agriculture. And we've got this uh, uh, exponential increase in set, um, what's called dead zones in the ocean, where you get 
um, influx of, of mostly fertilizers from agricultural land and, and farm waste, um, causing what's called eutrophication, when you get a growth of plankton in the water that then dies and uses, and then bacteria break that down and use up all the oxygen. So you basically get areas where there's very little oxygen and, much, and pretty much nothing else can survive. And that's um, kind of sweeping through coastal areas around the world. So, I mean, I know it's on a small scale, but if, you know, choosing food that's not been raised in this kind of really intensive ways, it's going to be one way of uh, kind of cutting back on that. Okay. Yeah, stop. Yep. Okay. okay well, thank, thank you, you for um, Thank you.